Radio. Dawn of the Cyber Christ. Theology and Hybridity. A talk by Dr. Matthew Tan. At Mass this afternoon, we heard this reading taken from um, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verse 15. For I set before you good and life, and evil and death. I would like to begin by drawing your attention to two pop culture icons in a similar fashion just as a way to give us some concrete reference point uh, for my paper this evening. The two, conc- uh, the two pop culture icons that I'm looking at are Edward from Twilight, and I say this with some trepidation, Neo from the Matrix trilogy. I say this with trepidation because I realize that it's been almost 20 years since the first um, Matrix film, and I really felt my age um, one day in class when I um, mentioned Neo in class, and some actually had no idea who Neo was. And I really felt old that day. Um, I, I choose these two figures, Edward from Twilight and Neo from The Matrix, um, because not because they are just fantastic images on the big screen. They're, they're both fantastic. But there is uh, a popular allure to both of these figures, which I think we must um, interrogate and look at tonight. In a sense, both... Um, Edward and Neo have become the secular saints of an impulse within popular culture, and an impulse which has been gradually realized in various phases over the last hundred years. This is an impulse that can be broadly described as hybridity, the desire to overcome the limitations of the human by augmenting the human with the non-human. There is a word to describe such a hybridized condition in the academic literature, and that is called transhumanism or posthumanism. Now, just look, look at Edward. Think about Edward. I don't have a, 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 a slide of him for which I apologize, but just picture Edward. Right. Just close your eyes and picture his, his, uh, you know, picture his, his face. You think about Edward, and if you think that Edward was just any ordinary jaundiced, slightly emaciated, verging on emo teenager, you would think that all Edward is good for is to be a walking advertisement for the beef industry. Because if you look at Edward, nothing says eat more red meat quite like him. No, Edward has an appeal, rather, because he he is the embodiment of a kind of fairy tale, an admixture of the human with the undead. And this admixture of the human with the undead epitomizes the desirability within popular culture for the human to be more than just human. Not only that, Edward is a vampire that is not tucked away in some distant castle. He is a vampire that mingles with the hustle and bustle of everyday, ordinary human experience. But I want to focus not so much on Edward, since we are yet to become vampires anytime soon. Instead, I will focus on Neo, because in many respects, Neo is the epitome of another kind of hybridity, that between the human and the cybernetic. And if you think for a minute, this kind of hybridity is one that is much more accessible. Actually, in many respects, it is more than accessible, because in some respects, The hybridity that is featured in the Matrix has not only been realized, it's actually been surpassed. Now, if you think I'm kidding, just think of the cell phones that were used in the first movie 20 years ago. 
right? What has become the phone of our choice in our day? It's the smartphone. They did not have smartphones when the first Matrix movie was made. And that was a, mov and that was a movie that was supposed to depict the future. Right? So in many respects, we have surpassed the, the world of the Matrix. Now going beyond cell phones, just, just think of, as mentioned in the poster, other ways in which our bodily lives interface with the cybernetic on an everyday basis. Think of social networking. Think of online gaming. Think of CGI movies as forms of entertainment. Think of credit cards and online purchasing. In each of these situations, ladies and gentlemen, we are engaging in practices of cybernetic hybridity in very, very subtle ways and in very great ways. Now, I mentioned before Deuteronomy chapter 30 that we face a choice of life and good on the one hand and death and evil on the other. I might have given the idea that the hybridity that the vampire epitomizes simply because the vampire deals in death must be evil and this may give the impression that therefore the hybridity of um, cyberspace would be a life-giving good hybridity. But is that such a simple dichotomy to draw? What adds a layer of complexity to our consideration of cybernetic hybridity is that now Catholics are being encouraged to use cybernetic enhancements as an avenue for evangelization. I recently addressed the Australian Catholic Bishops Conference on this very issue. There is an encouragement at all levels of the church to take up the task of being missionaries online. And this encouragement has given rise to a number of church outreach endeavors, anything from online forums like Catholic Answers, online dating sites like Catholic Match, and even missionary outreach programs on multi, massive multiplayer online role-playing games like World of Warcraft. And even, even online churches for avatars on the game Second Life. There's now a fully functioning Anglican cathedral in Second Life called the Anglican Cathedral of Second Life, which is in now in, being, uh, in discussion with being linked up to a real-life diocese in the Church of England. The question we need to explore is this. How does the task of evangelization sit within the context of cybernetic hybridity? So there's another question that we need to ask ourselves. Can the body of Christ extend itself cybernetically? Is there a cybernetic body of Christ? Can the dawn of cybernetic hybridity equate to the emergence of a cybernetic Christ? The question I am also asking tonight is whether the religious themes that course through the tale of cybernetic enhancement, and there are religious themes that course through the tale of cybernetic enhancement. Any of you who did not watch The Matrix and came and not came, uh, sorry, who watched The Matrix and did not come out thinking, yeah, that was a purely secular show there, right? Missed out on something, right? But the question I want to ask is, is this a mere accident? Are the religious themes running through The Matrix a mere accident? Or is, it a, is cybernetic enhancement merely a purely secular phenomenon? Ultimately, I am asking, as a theologian, is whether Christian theology has anything to say to this phenomenon of cybernetic hybridity. Because if cybernetic hybridity is a purely secular thing, then Christian theology will run into problems of competence. But if cybernetic hybridity was a theological phenomenon, and what I am arguing tonight is that it is a theological phenomenon, 
then theology is not merely coming up with an extra layer of commentary on a secular issue. Rather, Christian theology is actually interrogating cybernetic hybridity on equal terms. This is an indicator not just of the social potency of Christian theology, but it also is an indicator of the magnitude of the challenge that cybernetic hybridity poses, both to Christian and non-Christian alike. Now, to understand the challenge that is posed by cybernetic hybridity, I will need to talk about the cultural power of cyberspace. When I talk about the cultural power of cyberspace to my friends, who very soon stop being my friends, um, one big response I often encounter is the question, well, isn't it just the way that we use the internet that is important? Right? This is a very common response. And the reason why it is a common response is because there is an assumption that what the internet is, is just another channel. It's just another medium of communication. There's this tendency to think not just of this communicative medium, the internet, but of any communicative medium as just a neutral instrument through which we can say what can be said without any alteration to the content. We presume that we can use the medium and that medium will leave the user and its communications unchanged. Now, in response, two important books have been written on this very issue. The first is a rather well-known book. You probably know about it already. It depicts an old man sitting down, ranting about this newly arrived communications technology that will irreversibly change the way that we understand truth. It will erode our relationships. It will dissolve our community. It will rip the soul out of our language. It will, in the words of the great Australian theologians, be bloody awful. Thanks to this technology, our understanding will be based not on truth, but on deceitful apparitions, says this man. This book is not about the internet. In fact, books were not even written, or not even invented, rather, at the time this work was written. The work that I am referring to is the Phaedrus. The name of the old man is Plato, and the technology that he is referring to is writing. Now, why does Plato think of something, think this of something as benign as writing? To this, I draw your attention to the second book, written much later, in 1985. It is a book written by a communications theorist named Neil Postman. It's about TV, and it's a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. This book argued very compellingly, it's a great book, it argued very compellingly that forms of communications are not just mere instruments. They don't just slot into the culture and leave the culture unchanged. Rather, communications technologies actually presume and create a particular kind of culture. This is the important thing. Communications technologies create cultures. So cyberspace is not just by extension, it is not just a mere instrument. It is a cultural force. Cyberspace is a cultural force with a cultural center of gravity. So to borrow from Neil Postman, the internet is not just a place for the relaying of information. The internet reformats information. It dictates what counts as information. Going further, Postman says that when one form of communication starts to become the dominant form of communication, 
all other forms of communication start to mimic that dominant form. So to use his example of TV, he said that when TV started to become the backbone of our entertainment culture, all other forms of communication started to mimic TV. So as one example, think of the role that TV has had in forming the speech patterns of not just young people, but of all people. Think of another Simpsons references that you put in into your everyday um, communications. Think of a number of movie references that you um, insert in everyday conversations. Think of the text speak that many students use in final papers. You think I'm kidding, right? I'm, I'm grading final papers right now. Right? So any instrument, far from being neutral, comes with its own value set that feeds back. It actually feeds back on the instrument's user. A more famous communications theorist, a man by the name of Marshall McLuhan, very staunch Catholic, I might add, once said, we shape our tools and our tools shape us. And this is the reason why he coined his most famous phrase, the medium is the message. Similarly, cyberspace, rather than being a neutral instrument, is actually a cultural world that carries its own metaphysical and ethical presumptions. So in short, one does not simply make the medium bend to our will to communicate what we want to communicate. Very often what happens instead is that we end up conforming ourselves to suit the medium. If you don't believe me, try performing Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream on Pinterest. Right? So when this happens, we are being formed. And being formed, ladies and gentlemen, is the stuff of culture. Culture cultivates. Culture forms. So if a communications instrument forms, it is also producing a culture. So cyberspace, similarly, is not a cybernetic space. Cyberspace is a cybernetic culture. But what are the effects of the cybernetic culture? What does this do to human culture? Now, the, effort, uh, the effects rather of cybernetic hybridity are manifold. But if you wanted a word to summarize the biggest effect that cybernetic hybridity has had on human culture, it is this word, fragmentation. We have all of these images to encapsulate the various forms of social organization. For instance, we have the body to denote things like the state. We use words like the civic body, the social body, the body politic, etc. What image shall we use for cyberculture? An image I would like to attach to cyberculture would be a centrifuge. You guys have used centrifuges before, right? Centrifuges um, spins, and as they spin, the various components of the things they contain become separated and get put in their place. Now, I believe this is going to be an apt parallel to life in cyberculture for various reasons. Now, let's look at what cyberspace does to communication. One often forgets that communication, that human communication, is actually a very complex thing. It's a very complex web of words, bodily gestures, and sometimes human communication can involve no words or no bodily gestures. What Christianity brings to this culture is a complex and even poetic vocabulary to articulate the majesty that is human communication and indeed the human person. Think, for instance, Psalm 8 verse 3, that famous phrase, 
when I look upon the heavens, the moon and the stars that you have put in your place, what is man that you, keep, that you think of him, mortal man that you keep him in mind? This is a very poetic line, a beautiful line. But it's not just a detail, it's not just an optional gloss on describing what human personhood is. It's not as if what you want to say is, I am human and I have dignity, and you just tack on the poetic trope like the Psalms. No, the trope is the message of personhood. This elaboration is not an optional elaboration. It is the message of personhood. So communications is similarly very, very complex, very culturally textured. But what does cyberculture do to this complexity and this cultural texturing? What it does is that it breaks it down. It breaks it down to its constituent parts. I draw your attention to a, a media theorist named Jody Dean, who is a specialist in the politics of digital media in the United States. She argued in a book called Blog Theory. This book basically argues that cyberspace mandates the production of any thought whatsoever into smaller and smaller bits so that they can be easily distributed and sampled by as many people as possible. Just think of the concept of the soundbite in the era of 24-hour news, long before the emergence of Facebook and Twitter. There, one can already see the pressure to reduce statements to easily digestible samples, and the pressure to produce smaller, more digestible bits of data has become even greater in our day and age with the forms of social media today. Just think of Twitter, where all that needs to be said can only be said in 140 characters or less. Or in the case of Facebook, with one photo or less, the pick bite. Right? To make things communicable in new media, they would have to be broken up into very small fragments. And this means at any one time, only a small fraction of the story can get told in these fragments. Now, many might not have a problem with this segmenting that cyberspace does. Right? We think we can just sort of break things down, put them back into cyberspace later on, and then put them back together again. However, according to Jody Dean, what has changed in the age of new media is that the culture that it has created, more so than any previous generation of communicative technology. This culture has now become more resistant to the recombination of fragments into a cohesive whole. Just think of trying to piece together uh, a narrative of the Lord of the Rings, punch into 140 characters or less on Twitter, and try to put them back up together on, on a Twitter feed. Right? The bits of narrative get drowned out by other narratives just almost as soon as they are posted. Cyberspace is a culture of fragments. And cyberspace, not only that, it thrives on fragments. The sound bites that get produced within cyberspace are intended to stay as fragments. So those wanting to advance the gospel, the gospel narrative of creation, fall, and redemption, face one big hurdle in cyberspace. And it comes in the form of a question. How are you going to proclaim the whole story of salvation to a culture that proclaims in return that whole stories do not exist? That is the question that um, many online missionaries face. This is the one reason why I think the centrifuge image is an apt image. 
The other reason why I think it's such an apt image is because of another effect that cyberspace has um, not only on the fragmentation of messages, but on the fragmentation of people. There are two levels of fra the fragmentation of people that I want to consider. First, let's look at the fragmentation that cyberspace has on social bodies. In other words, the cultural center of gravity that I'm looking at is an atomizing force. A major contributor to the atomization we are seeing in our societies is not merely the way our cities are organized. Right? We, we, I, come, I live in Chicago, it's a massive city, um, and I know the atomizing uh, effects that living in a big city has. I live uh, in Sydney, which geographically speaking is three times the size of Chicago, with half the number of people. Right? So give you some idea of the, at the atomizing power of cities. But that's not what I'm going to focus on. Right? I'm going to focus on, this, on cyberspace because cyberspace has also had a big role to play in urban atomization. This is because cyberspace, as I said before, cyberspace is a culture that presupposes certain metaphysical claims. Right? One of these claims is that the autonomous individual is the indispensable building block of any society. Just think about that claim again. The autonomous individual is the indispensable building block of any society. Now, what, at first glance, you may think, wait, 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 wait. What does this have to do with our personhood? What does this have to do with the advancement of the body of Christ? Understandable questions. But the issue of atomization, even though it may, not, it may seem like a non-issue uh, at first glance, will actually become an issue when we stop to consider that when we are talking about inhabiting any culture as Christians, we are not meant to inhabit that culture as individuals. Indeed, Christians never engage in anything, first and foremost, as individuals. Rather, Christians inhabit the world first and foremost as members of a body, the body of Christ. Jesus himself noted in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 5, that he was the vine and Christians are his branches. And outside of that vine, Christians can do nothing. That's in the Gospel of John. As Christians, we must recognize ourselves not as individuals who happen to be Christian. As Christians, we must recognize ourselves first and foremost as extensions of the body of Christ and more concretely, as extensions of his body, namely the church. The church is not just an abstract word that we use to, as a, uh, to collect a set of abstract ideas called Christianity. The church is a concrete social reality that we become part of in everything that we do. We must be aware that part of our personhood comes from the fact that we are, as the then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger once wrote, all called to communion. Our very being is summarized by Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 4. Abide in me as I abide in you. Our very makeup as persons has been, re, uh, has been constituted by a communion of persons. And this image of communion of persons as part of our being has been reinforced through the centuries by doctors of the church like St. John of the Cross the more, and more recent days like Dorothy Day, John Paul II, the Greek Orthodox theologian, Bishop John Zizoulas, all of whom spoke of our very being as one 
founded on communion with God and by extension with everybody else. So communion is one of the hallmarks of human personhood. But if that were the case, can it square up with a social landscape that is cybernetically hybridized, that is cybernetically hybridized and comprised solely of autonomous individuals? Cyberspace's love for individuals is not a mere accident. As a culture, it identifies and breaks up organic social bodies and transforms those members into individuals, trying to make them forget their fundamental relationship with their traditional communal belonging. A sign of this can be seen in an article in the Journal of Cyber Psychology, Behavior and Social Networking. This article found a link between heavy use of Facebook with increased suspicion by, use, by a user's romantic partner, leading to jealousy, breakup, and in some cases, divorce. In Australia, a statistic came out that, that in transcripts in divorce proceedings, one-third of these divorce proceedings mention Facebook as a contributing factor. The pressure within cyberspace to dissolve communion has a lot to do with the deep connections that cyberspace has with another dominant cultural institution, namely the consumer market. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but one of the defining features of our consumer habits nowadays has been grounded on sampling, the liberation from all forms of commitment. Just think of no commitment contracts nowadays for mobile phones and mobile broadband, peddling thousands upon thousands of bite-sized computer programs now that we now know as apps that you can download and erase in a heartbeat, the iTunization of our music, and so on. As an aside, have you noticed how all of these popular products are all connected to the internet? One thing that few people notice is that when this sampling is going on, things have to be broken down into smaller, more manageable bits. Fragmentation is the stuff of commerce. Commerce is fast becoming the stuff of cyberspace. Think of the ads on Facebook. And if cyberspace has become the stuff of human interaction, then human interaction, and with it, human personhood, may fall prey to being subordinate to the essentially commercial logic of sampling and non-commitment. You think I'm kidding? Hookup culture. Relationships have now become a commodity to be bought, sold, and disposed of at a whim. So how does cyberspace dissolve communion? I said that theoretically it dissolves communion. How does it do so practically? It does so first by maintaining only the most superficial relationships. If friendships are built on deep and meaningful communications, the pressure within cyberspace to reduce all communications to sound bites, samples, can only sustain a very threadbare connection with one's friends. But if we look at some of our more substantial friendships, Staying in touch involves more than the odd poke or tweet. Staying in touch involves cups of coffee. It involves meals. It involves spearing in the football field. It involves nights in the theater. It involves days in the parish. It involves spearing in the parish, and so on. Right? Substantial friendships are those that are bred in physical space. What cyberspace does instead is sustain not only a threadbare communion, 
but a communion that tries to transcend physical space by establishing links in a virtual digitized space. And what this what what ends up do uh, sorry what ends up happening is that it, cyberspace breaks up another key element in the building of deep and meaningful communion, namely physical space. Following the logic of sampling in consumer culture, cyberspace breaks up our conception of physical space into bite-sized, manageable units around individual users. And in so doing, cyberspace tries to convince us that every friendship can be the equivalent of a long-distance relationship without any alteration to that relationship whatsoever. We can see that cybernetic hybridity whilst designed to extend the capabilities of organic human life, challenge that life in very important ways. While cyberspace poses a challenge to the human by dissolving people at a communal level, it also challenges organic human life by dissolving people at an individual level. So now I'm looking at the second way that cyberspace dissolves and fragments. It dissolves and fragments individuals at the level of the body. Again, this may not seem very obvious. To understand this, I would like to return to the point I made about what cyberspace does to communication. For if you notice something about communications in cyberspace, you notice that they're always text-based. Think of tweets, think of your, your status updates, right? They're always text-based. But you may think, well, what about Pinterest? What about Instagram? Aren't those, you know, aren't those image-based? True, but how do you make the image possible? Through text, through code. So even your images that you put up in cyberspace are text-based, right? The reason for this is that everything on the net, even the internet itself, is described by analysts as what they call a digitized hypertext, right? You notice how um, in, in the introduction to the matrix, the introduction to the matrix had this, all these strings of code that eventually coalesce into um, an image and a physical environment. This is sort of describing the reality of cyberspace. Everything in cyberspace is text-based because everything in cyberspace is code, right? You need textual codes in order to see anything in cyberspace. But what does this have to do with human personhood? Follow me on this. If cyberspace is fundamentally textual, then communications becomes fundamentally textual. Text becomes the governing conversational medium. And when text becomes the governing conversational medium, what often gets removed from communication is the nonverbal aspects of communication. The bodily component of communication gets erased. Just think of the number of times when our most profound communications are done without a word being exchanged. So much of our communications is nonverbal, and so much of that nonverbal communication occurs at the level of body language. Language is as much um, corporeal as it is verbal. Ask any Italian. Right? Indeed, the body plays such an important role in communication precisely because it is often able to speak in ways that are more textured, more nuanced, and thus more profound than any articulated word. Think of the smile. Think of the kiss. Think of the look into a pair of weeping eyes. And I challenge you to express that look and their significance in text. Very often you can't. Now what happens when you remove the body, the bodily aspect from communication? 
and then transplant it into an exclusively text-based platform like cyberspace. When you do that, the effects will be much more profound than meets the eye. Text, as I said earlier, is not able to assume the same kind of depth and nuance as the body. So what ends up happening to communication when it becomes textualized is that, is that communication becomes increasingly one-dimensional. What counts as communications in cyberspace has become this blander, flattened version of its traditional embodied counterpart. If part of human personhood is in communication, we can see that personhood start to assume a very different form in cyberspace. Textual communications becomes based not, now becomes based not on quality expressions, but on volume rather than substance. And our personhood in cyberspace becomes dependent on the ability to articulate words, lots of words, and lots of words often. The kinds of communications that do not involve this excretion of a tidal wave of words, such as physical presence, all these kinds of communication fall by the wayside in online platforms. Furthermore, textual platforms of communication also impacts on bodily human interaction. As an example, I'd like to show you a piece of sociological research on internet dating. Very often, these uh, internet dating sites work on the principle of providing as much information of the client as possible. And virtually all of that information is textual. According to some sociological research, what ends up happening in such situations is that when the time comes for people who use internet dating platforms to meet up, guess what? It becomes an anticlimax. Why does it become an anticlimax in many secure circumstances? Because according to the respondents who got interviewed, they found face-to-face -face interactions disappointing. And they were disappointed because the physical presence of the person does not match the expectations that had been set by the textual displays, by the online profile. The other effect on communications when you have text becoming the governing conversational medium is that the body then starts to become indispensable. Uh, sorry, it starts to become dispensable. Not just for communications. It becomes dispensable for anything. If you learn anything from Aristotle and Aquinas, is that you cannot be you without your body. Human personhood involves not only the integrity of the soul, but the integrity of the body as well. And the integrity of the body is the very thing that is challenged by the cultural center of gravity of cybernetic hybridity. It is a culture that believes that embodiment is an appendage to a dignified life. Indeed, cyberspace tries to make a culture believe that embodiment is an obstacle to a dignified life. In the same way that cyberspace does not like physical space, it does not like physical bodies because physical bodies are limited. They stay in one place. They stay in one shape. They smell. They're full of crap. In so many ways, they're full of crap. Right? They are unworthy to inhabit a new life in which pure, undefiled text is the governing medium. And so what happens? Bodies become unworthy, they become vile. And these vile bodies are then made to conform to the ideals set by the governing medium. There is a word used by um, 
uh, an Indian uh, media theorist named Nishan Shah to describe the process of making the body conform to text. The word that he uses is called reverse translation. Right? Just think of that, that word, that, that phrase for a second there. Right? The, body, the body becomes translated in the reverse. Bodies are made to conform to text, particularly those text-based images that I was mentioning about. One very glaring example of this conforming of the body to text-based images is the increasing prevalence of plastic surgery among younger and younger patients who very often try to augment their unworthy bodies to suit worthier, more dignified images that they see on the internet, in particular, pornographied images. This was documented in a lengthy article some years back in Time magazine. It's an increasingly um, common experience for a plastic surgeon to have somebody show up with a porn, image, a porn image or a porn mag in their hand, slap it on the table and say, make me look like that. When bodies become dispensable, one would not give a second thought to breaking, cutting, molding and extending that body to acquire the newly formed dignity of the text-based image. Why this is a concern for the Christian is that this impulse to conform the body to a text-based image constitutes a reversal of the most fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, namely the Incarnation. For the Incarnation is the doctrine of the word being flesh. In the age of cybernetic hybridity, the impulse is to make the flesh become word. So we can see that as promising as some forms of cybernetic hybridity might be in expanding the capabilities of the human to communicate, to commune, and to develop, we see that in our, in our experiences, right? And yet, in some subtle ways, I hope to have pointed out that the culture of cybernetic hybridity is also an altar demanding human sacrifice. But at this point, I want to turn to the question on whether anything can be done in the defense of the human in an age of cybernetic hybridity. Do we shun it? Do we burn the internet? Do we grow beards and become like Catholic Amish and raise Catholic barns? Right. Let me say right now that this cannot be an option. For we are already at a stage where physical life is already being shaped by an all-pervasive all cyberculture. There is no place to escape to. And so our human life in this city is already set against a backdrop of being a citizen in a cybernetic city. Is that something to sound familiar? Right? To put this in more Augustinian terms, we cannot escape cyberspace because cyberspace has become thoroughly integrated into the city of man. And all we can do as citizens of the city of God is to move within the streets of this new cybernetic city of man. One foot will always be planted firmly in each city. Furthermore, we forget that cyberspace, this information superhighway, is supposed to be one of the highways and the back alleys which the Master Jesus Christ exhorted his servants to go and send the invitations to the feast in Luke chapter 14, verse 23. The highways and the back alleys are dangerous places, as I presented above, and still we must go there. But do we stay in the highways and the back alleys? 
The image in Luke chapter 14, verse 23 suggests that the highways and back alleys are but places from which we bring people out, and these highways should lead to the feast which we as Christians have in the body of Christ. I use the word body deliberately here, for if we can sum up the processes of cybernetic hybridity, ultimately, it will be not just fragmentation, it will be disembodiment. And if the human is threatened at the level of embodiment, then the church as an embodied community of believers is what is needed to defend the human from disappearing into the centrifuge of the cybernetic. Cyberspace must be a stepping stone to lead to a life that is in the embodied church. And the Eucharist is that concrete practice that gives us the cultural vocabulary for our habitation of the cybernetic. um, Yes, so rather than cyberspace making the flesh disappear into the word, the Eucharist brings to us again and again the word made flesh and the word really present in the flesh. And in the consumption of that Eucharistic flesh, we can be said to undergo a proper, true process of hybridization. We are called to be hybrids, but we are called to augment ourselves with the person who is truly human, but also truly more than human. The Eucharist then becomes the true form of hybridization. It is through the Eucharist that we augment our flesh with the flesh of one which is simultaneously fully, as I said, fully and beyond human, namely the incarnate word. In short, because we are the body of Christ and because we are inescapably immersed in the cybernetic city, we are seeing the dawn of the cyber Christ. But it is only when cyberspace is rooted in the embodied Eucharistic space of the church that one can ensure that cyberspace does not become an altar dedicated to a false god. I thank you for your attention. That was a talk by Dr. Matthew Tan. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.